What up, peeps? One o'clock, top of the hour on the East Coast. Guy Adami here. I'm always joined by Dan Nathan from Market Call. We're going to put 30 minutes on the clock today, Dan. That's our want to do. Today's Market Call brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. I love saying that. It's such a catchy buzz phrase. And we are powered by Open Exchange. Check them out on Twitter at Open Exchange TV. Sometimes people are born with crystal balls, Dan. Other times people develop them over time. Uh, I don't know where I fall into that, but I will tell you, our crystal ball has been working pretty damn well here on Market Call. All right, easy Nostradami, as our listeners and our viewers like to call you. I mean, listen, I, I think we got to start with that. You know, steadfast, you have been 3750. We talked about it last night on CNBC's Fast Money. Listen, we did some math here. We were looking at the 10 year average of the PE of the SP 500, and it was about 17. And we really overshot it, right? Heading into 2022. And expectations for year over year earnings growth for the SP 500 were like north of 10%. And you and I talking about all these macro inputs, and we're going to hit them all here. Rates going higher, inflation staying higher, the dollar moving higher, the potential for recession in Europe because of the shooting war that started early this year. We're like, no way. Maybe you get mid-single digit earnings growth. You put $220 times the 17 multiple, you get to your $3,750. So- Guy, you didn't have a crystal ball, did a little math. You used some technicals, too. You also thought that was a big technical level. And we're going to hit that here. But I got to give you kudos because you've been steadfast on it. And then in a couple minutes, when we look at that chart, you're going to tell us where do you think we go from here? Do we get a short-term bounce or do we overshoot, Guy? Yeah, we will talk about that. And listen, you know, I started that. I was saying somewhat tongue-in-cheek. What's difficult you know, through what we try to do each day is I think the easy way out is always to be optimistic, always try to say market will go higher, buy the dip, those types of things. But I think it's somewhat disingenuous. And quite frankly, um, it doesn't do the viewer any good. You have to say what's on your mind and you're either going to be right or going to be wrong, but at least you do it with the courage of your conviction. And within my in my uh, purview, the experience of some of the 36 years or so doing this in the market and all the things you pointed out, yeah the things that we were talking about back in November and December. And one thing I've said, and I'll say again, if your mandate is or if your mantra is don't fight the Federal Reserve, then that's typically said during times when the Fed is easing and adding liquidity to the system. So if you're bearish under those set of circumstances, you're effectively fighting the Fed. I get it. That's work. David Tepper talks about it all the time. But if that's true when they're adding liquidity, the same should be true when they're taking it away. So right now, and I've said it since November, if you're bullish overall, you're effectively doing the same thing. You're fighting the Federal Reserve. And here's now some 22% or so later in the S&P 500 from its peak. I think people are starting to figure out what that means, Dan. Yeah, well, I think it's really important. If you look at uh, Amanda, put a, did a great job throwing together some headlines from this morning and kind of putting some kind of, I don't know, framework around what just happened in the market over the last few days. These are three uh, or four of the last or the worst market days that, that I can remember stitched together here, Guy. And I think it's interesting. Here's a headline. And if this is new to you, okay, where we are right now in mid-June, then you haven't been really paying attention. Bull market winners drag the S&P 500 into a bear market. You and I have been suggesting that large pockets of risk in the market 
have been correcting and been in a bear market for over a year. And this thing won't end until the major names join the party. So that's what we're doing. I do think it's interesting. Marco Kalanovic, he is the derivative strategist there over um, at uh, JP Morgan. He comes on Fast Money with us. I think it's interesting that CNBC Pro likens him to a guru. I don't know about you, Guy. When I hear the word guru in the financial markets, I kind of want to run for the hills a little bit here, to be very frank. But he sees the year recovering its losses and ending flat. How do we get there, guy? I mean, like I'm looking at the S&P down 21%, the NASDAQ down 30%. To me, it just doesn't seem likely. And, you know, other headlines are, you know, we got a little back and forth. Is this a bear market? Is it going to be a protracted bear market? And we're going to look at some of the lengths of those. But how do we get to unchanged on the year from where we are basically mid-year right now? Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's happening either. But I will answer your question. As I say, I'll play your reindeer game yeah, you with will. you here, Dan. And I'll say we can get there a couple different ways we can get there russia ukraine suddenly and unexpectedly comes to an end both sides go to their respective corners and peace breaks out in eastern europe that's number one number two we can get there if this federal reserve somehow has to reverse course in the second half of the year i don't think that would be particularly bullish overall but i think the market would take their cues from there and we could potentially get there that way or we could get there on the back of Uh, demand destruction in crude oil, crude starts to come down. At the same time, the world starts to open up again. That's the three ways, in my opinion, we can get there. I just don't think it's going to happen, quite frankly. And, you know, I think Marco, to a certain extent, is throwing in the towel. And I'll say this about gurus. You know, people will call us gurus, market experts. There's no such thing. I mean, there are people that have done it for a long time. But I think what we've learned the hard way over the years is each and every day, the market has an absolute way of not only humbling you, but humiliating you as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. I am familiar with the humiliation guy, Adami. You know, you try to pick apart the consensus bare thesis and, and you gotta you get destroyed on Twitter, but we don't care about such things. Amanda threw up this chart. I like this here, guy. This is the bear history. This is from Bloomberg. And it's mm-hmm. going actually, you know, this is going back for the better part of my career. I started in 1997. I was there. I had a front row seat at a hedge fund for the inflation of the dot-com bubble. But all my scar tissue, all the deficiencies I have when it comes to trading and markets and thinking about consensus really comes in the post-dot-com era because that protracted bear market really took market lives or years off of people's market lives, if you will, because you know 2000 was bad. People didn't believe it, that it was done. 2001 was bad. There was, you know, 9-11, there was a recession, there was a whole host of things. But 2002 felt the worst guy. And look at this, we were down 51% peak to trough in the S&P 500. The NASDAQ was down much, much more than that. But it took 60, 638 days, right, to bottom. And then in the global financial crisis, the S&P went down 58%, took 352 days to bottom. COVID was a fake bear market, right? It was not a protracted bear market. We threw trillions of dollars of fiscal and monetary stimulus. And now here we are. This is where I'm going to tee you up, buddy. Okay, we are down 22% in 111 days. And I think you would say this is not just about the inflation that was caused post pandemic and because of the war and because of deglobalization. This is decades in the making. Is that what you would say about what's going on right here? And you don't think this is going to be a short many decades in the making, quite frankly, I mean, this goes back to the Greenspan days. And when Fed decided they needed to insert themselves into conversations, they've never basically taken themselves out of the conversation. And I think to a certain extent, we're going to start to feel the ramifications of the largesse that they've been providing over the last 30 or so years. So yes, it can be protracted. Now, 
at some point you got to pay the piper. And I think that's what we're waking up to. You mentioned that um, last 2020 was a fake bear market. I, I understand exactly what you're saying. It's fake because we threw trillions of dollars at the problem. And almost by definition, the market needed to go up on the back of that. And I think to a certain extent, you have to back that one out. I think the real things to look at are those periods from 2004 and again from 05 to basically 2010 to sort of get a lens as to how long it can last. I will say this on the positive side, I think things happen a lot faster these days. So I think those recovery days you can pretty much cut in half. But with that said, I do think we're in for a protracted period where it's going to be very difficult to navigate the market. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's something that was necessary and it's been necessary for years. It's just happening now. Yeah, I think that because of that rate environment and the liquidity that we had, I think a lot of investors were just kind of lulled as far as valuations are concerned here. And and here's the deal, man. I mean, if, if tons of these innovative names, those ARC names, right, oh. are down 60, 70, 80 percent, sorry to get you teed up here. Well, some of them may never really come back. There's probably some diamonds among the rough. But really, I mean, the opportunity to set up in, let's say, some of these beloved names that were trading at 27. 28 times, and you know what they are, Microsoft, Apple, you know, even the alphabet here, you may have a really good opportunity to buy them below 20 times, very near a market multiple, setting up for, let's say, another bull run. I personally think that those will be the leadership names when it comes out of this. But guy, I got to talk to you about, you know, it seems like all the, all the traders that you and I are speaking to, they're on edge right now because of the uncertainty about what's going to happen with the Fed's rate decision. But I'll say this, man, you know, the markets are basically unchanged right now, the S&P 500, but I see a couple things that are really disturbing me today. Target's making new two new 52-week new lows. JP Morgan's making new 52-week lows. A name like Expedia um, making new 52-week lows. And the airlines, two days in a row, just getting absolutely creamed. So under the hood, there's a couple important names and sectors that act very poorly. Home builders continue to act poorly. Thoughts here on a day where we're looking for some stability after yesterday's bloodbath. We know we have this event coming tomorrow that's likely to move the markets. What do you feel about today's action right now? The names you mentioned all have one thing in common. They're somehow consumer forward, consumer looking, right? Consumer in their purview. I mean, JP Morgan, listen, you can back them out a little bit. But with that said, I think the reason why you're seeing weakness there probably in large part is due to valuation. They've been awarded or rewarded with the peak valuation, or not, I shouldn't say peak valuation, a premium valuation yeah. compared to their peers. The other names, all consumer. You think about it, Expedia, Airlines, Target. I think what they're telling you is, you know what, maybe things are not going to be as robust for this consumer that it, until recently has been impervious to any of these things. They've been spending money hand over fist. And if you look, credit card debt is about to approach $1 trillion with a T dollars in this country. Uh, that's a problem. It's more so a problem with rates going higher and layoffs coming. I mean, there's this pastiche of bad news that continues to come every day. And I think that's what the market is telling you today. So I hear what you're saying in terms of the broader market started treading water. Quite frankly, I thought we'd have a far more impressive day today, given the levels that I thought we'd trade down to. But here we are, and you got to make wind of it. And I'll say this one other thing. The credit market is starting to flash. I don't want to say red, but it's definitely starting to flash a little orange. And that's something you absolutely continue to have to look at and something we've talked about here on Market Call, you know, literally for the last few months. All right. Let's hit the S&P futures here, Guy, because, you know, you're 3750. It literally 
It traded there <clears throat> to the penny uh, yesterday, um, you know, and you've been making that call, I think, all year long. That was the level. Where do we go now? Because if you go back and you look at that September 2020 high, okay, that was about 3,600. And then below that is 3,400 or so, just below that. That was the pre-pandemic high in February 2020. You know, we've been drawing that range as the kind of the, the support zone for the S&P 500 here. It seems like a foregone conclusion. Might we rally into tomorrow's print? I made this point last night on Fast Money Guy that this kind of setup reminds me into the March meeting, which it was very well telegraphed. The Fed was going to raise 25 basis points. Um, and what did we do? We sold off into that about 13% and we ripped over the next two weeks on the way out of it. The market liked the certainty of the guidance that the Fed was giving. Now, in the last day or so, we've had that sort of forward guidance thrown upside down. How do you think the S&P trades over the next couple of days in and out of this Fed meeting. So again, I thought today to get a bigger bounce. And again, there are a couple hours left, so I'm not going to completely write it off. But I'll say this. I absolutely think you're setting up for exactly the type of move that you just highlighted. You know, I could easily see 150 S&P handle to the upside day coming sometime this week. We're sold off enough. We're extended enough. I mean, yesterday, I think it was 98% um, of these S&P 500 stocks were lower. I think the record is 99% or something like that. So you think about how overextended things have gotten. And I still think the market probably continues to trend lower. But this was my first stop. So I think it's natural to assume we're going to see a bounce. And I don't know if it comes on Fed commentary or just some sort of relief rally on the fact that this meeting is out of the way. We will see. But the setup to me, to me at least, sets up for a pretty mind-numbing rally to the upside over the next couple trading days. Yeah, and I said this to you, you know, I'm looking at maybe, let's see, I'd love to see them close really poorly today or open lower tomorrow and and, and maybe look at some kind of weekly calls in the S&P 500 playing for some sort of knee-jerk reaction the other way here. Um, Guy, i just say this, you know, I I mentioned that 3,600, then the Mm 3,400 level, you know, for me, the S&P gets interesting when it's retraced the entire move from its pre-pandemic levels. That would be down 30% from its highs the first week in January back to those February 2020 um, you know levels there when the S&P crashed 35%. I just wanted to throw this one up. We don't you know we haven't talked about the Z- the VIX in a couple of days. It's been elevated in this kind of 30 level. It really felt like I wanted to get creamed, you know, as we were rallying before, you know, the week before last year. But, you know, this this tweet from Rosie um, earlier today got me thinking, or this was last night. We've had 8% inflation before, been a while, but we've had it. What we've never had before was the Fed hiking rates into an official bear market, brand spanking new, more downside coming. So I, I kind of agree with what Rosie's saying here, guy. And I wanted to overlay this with the VIX chart, because if we were to get your move, OK, let's say in the S&P, we had like a 100 point bounce, 150 point bounce, that VIX is going to come in. But here's the thing. It's not going to come in as much as people think, mm-hmm. right? Because all of a sudden now rate hike expectations are going higher, that level of uncertainty. And now we also have just a lot of stuff on the employment front and you know inflation and all that sort of stuff so to me i actually think it could set up you know you get that bounce um and then you'll have another move in the vix curious to your thoughts and how close are you tracking the vix and where do you think it would go if you had a hundred point move so here's my interpretation i'll answer that part of the question first 100 point 150 point move to the upside probably gets us down to somewhere 29 and a half 30 vix i would think again depending on how long it lasts or depending on how um, quick it gets there. Yeah. So that's just my take on the VIX in the short term. 
in the longer term, you think about what Rosie's saying and think about what I've said literally over the years. And I've said one of the many unintended or potentially uh, intended consequences of this Federal Reserve's largesse is they've been able to dampen volatility. And why? Because for years, people bought, bought options as a form of protection. Then they came to the realization that, wait a second, the market sells off, but it never stays down. Why bother buying this protection? And then I think some geniuses came out and said, wait a second, not only don't we need to buy volatility anymore, buy premium or buy protection, we can actually sell it and earn a synthetic dividend. That further dampened volatility, again, all basically at the hands of the Federal Reserve, whether intended or otherwise. I'll say this, now that the Fed is not there, they're not backstopping this thing, I think all bets are off. So I think if you're playing for dampened volatility, hoping that the Fed's going to sort of somehow save the day, I don't think it's there anymore. So I think Rosie makes an excellent point. You no longer have that Fed backstop, not only in the form of the market, but in form of volatility and the things sort of associated with it. Yeah. And, and they basically just raised the stakes, right? Because, you know, <clears throat> we've been talking about this on Market Call a little bit. I would not be surprised to see a Q2 GDP print that's negative, that officially puts us in a recession. And then the question goes, how long are we in a recession for? Because right now we haven't even seen unemployment tick up or we haven't supposedly seen widespread pullback in consumer demand. Who knows? I want to pro- throw up this um, NASDAQ 100 uh, futures chart here, Guy. And it's interesting. You heard me just mention that September 2020 high in the S&P 500 that we have not gotten there yet in the S&P futures, but we have gotten below that in the NASDAQ futures. And it just shows you down 30% you know, on the year here, that 10,000 level, which would be a round trip from the pre-pandemic, that seems in play. There's not a whole heck of a lot of technical support until you get, I don't know, below 11,000. And, and again, I think you're probably in agreement with me that that Microsoft pre-announcement from a couple of weeks ago, that was the tip of the iceberg. I suspect we're going to have difficult quartering guidance out of Apple, out of possibly Alphabet and, and out of Tesla, and, and maybe even NVIDIA. And that goes back to that one of those earlier charts we threw up from the Wall Street Journal that some of the biggest names have joined the party. If their fundamentals confirm what the technicals and the price action are already saying, then we're going to have a re-rating of those names on a downgrade to Ford or Guidance. And that's how you get the S&P or the NASDAQ down to those pre-pandemic levels. 100%. And we're looking at this through the lens of, obviously, futures, CME Group. And if you look at this chart, and it's important to point out, sometimes these things work. And Carter does an amazing job, obviously, and we have Carter on to talk about his work. But look at this chart and just in terms of quickly, lower left, upper right, it all stopped basically in November when the Fed pivoted. That makes sense. But then you had something really interesting happen. You had that 50-day moving average start to slope lower. You had the 50-day cross the 200-day. Now you have the 200-day sloping lower. Why do I mention this? Because this is a textbook now bear market in terms of what this looks like technically. The bounce that we did see in the NASDAQ earlier this year took us right back to that 200-day moving average we talked about at the time. We thought it would fail. It did. And now here we are. I think that horizontal line that you drew is absolutely the right one. Doesn't mean we can't have bounces along the way. But I think there's a certain inevitability to think we're going to get back to those levels. And the technicals sort of back it up. And you know what else backs it up right now? The fundamentals continue to back it up. Because as much as these names have sold off, some of them are still expensive in this environment. No doubt about it. You know, Guy, you caught my attention on our podcast on the tape a few weeks ago, and maybe it was like a month ago. You you know, as you will do, you do quote 
Michael Corleone, or, or many, many, many people Why from, I? from Godfather 1 and 2. But you, 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 this was a quote from Godfather 2 when you said, I saw something today that I've never seen before, yep. okay? And I will tell you this, and we don't have to go into the old Hyman Roth thing or everything, you know, that sort of thing. But this is really interesting. You and I have been watching the Fed. We've been watching markets, me for 25 years, you for a bit longer here. The Fed generally, even in this period of heightened communication, um, you know, of forward guidance, that sort of thing, they don't like to surprise markets too much. What happened yesterday, right, where the CME Fed funds futures tracker was pricing for weeks a, a very high probability, near basically 95% of a 50 basis point hike at this meeting that starts today and gets announced tomorrow. And yesterday, they obviously floated a trial balloon with the Wall Street Journal reporter saying they might have to do 75, that hot mm-hmm. CPI number. They must have had a look at today's PPI number that was really hot. When's the last time you can remember you know, a change of, of an important policy like this a day before the meeting? I can't remember one in a very long time. You know, and it's interesting. Now, this is a much longer conversation. You're clearly walking me down the primrose path. And that was a great scene, by the way. They were in Cuba, if you recall. And Michael Corleone says to Hyman Roth, I saw something today. Problem was he was in a, you know, they were about in a group of people. I think Hyman didn't want uh, Michael to say that as publicly as he did. But basically what he said is he saw something and what he saw startled him and upset him and kept him from investing the money that he was supposed to invest with Hyman Roth. That's neither here nor there. I'll say this in terms of the Fed. Their biggest problem is they shouldn't care about the market. The fact that you say the Fed doesn't want to surprise the market, that lies, therein lies the problem. It shouldn't be about the market at all. They should do what's best for the economy. It's got nothing to do with the market. And what's happened is the difference between the economy and the market has never been wider. That chasm continues to grow, and that's their fault. They should not be speaking to market participants. The market will figure it out. And if they're surprised along the way, that's what makes markets. It's better, in my opinion, to surprise the market than to disappoint the market or to disappoint or upwrap, you know, or screw up the economy, which is effectively what they're managing to do right now. Well, hold on. That's just my opinion, but that's just, you know, that is what it is. Because what they've managed to do until the last month and a half, Mm -hmm. two months, they managed to do a great job with the market. The problem is that only helps about the top 5% of the people. Everybody else, sort of gets left off on the on the side of the road. Yeah, well, let me just push back for one second, though, guys. So maybe it's not just the stock market that dropped so quickly over the last week or so. Maybe it's what you've been highlighting on Market Call and on Fast Money and on On the Tape. You've been watching the credit markets. You've been yep. watching high yield. I mean, maybe that move in the HYG and some of the underlying credits and spreads in general, maybe that's spooking them a little bit. Again, I, you know, I don't know, and I'm sure that's going to come up in this meeting. It's going to be a question that's asked of the Fed chair. But I think that, you know, again, and, you know, the market as a monolith, there's lots of different markets here. If you think about it, the dollar, we're going to hit that. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. And again, I will tell you this, in my 25 years, I've never seen so many confusing macro sorts of, uh, you know, headwinds at the same time. And I think that is probably quite hard. And to your point, maybe the markets are screwed right now because they're caught in this buzzsaw of some economic sort of conditions that we have not seen in decades and decades. So that that's the one way I would push back, guy. Well, look no, at- and it, no, you're yeah. right. I'll say this just to push back on your pushback. I okay. mean, price discovery is so important for market participants. And what these 
what this entity managed to do was take away that price discovery because maybe the credit markets weren't as sound as the market thought they were vis-a-vis the fact that the Fed was buying all this crap. Why were they buying these things? Let the market forces work and let the chips fall where they may. That's me. That's sort of my Darwinistic approach to this whole thing. It's important. Downturns are important. And allowing price discovery to manifest itself is equally important. And when you take it away, it gives people a false sense of security. So my pushback would be maybe the credit markets were not as strong as the market suggested. And the market was suggesting that because the Fed was buying all this stuff. No doubt about it. All right, let's just quickly take a look again at the CME FedWatch tool because, again, it seems like consensus right now is for a 75 basis point hike. At the last meeting, Fed Chair Powell, he's asked that question from Steve Leisman, whether a 75 was in the cards. He said, not likely. Well, that changed just days before the meeting. And now the CME FedWatch is, is, is predicting, uh, you know, two and a quarter to two and a half percent. So that would be two 75 basis point hikes here. Guy, you called for a second inversion of the 210 spread. We had it. What does it mean? It came quickly yesterday. It came quickly all at once here. Is this just another one of those really confusing sort of kind of macro inputs that a lot of equity market people may not be usually that focused on, but it sounds kind of scary, right? When the yield curve becomes inverted and before the 210 spread, we know that other parts of the curve were inverted. What does a second inversion mean to you right now? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it means. In layman's terms, it means, and the front end of the curve, which continues to be stubbornly high, it's suggesting inflation is a problem. The back end of the curve, which continues to sort of, I don't know, go sideways to slightly higher, not nearly as quickly, suggests that the economy is not going to be nearly as strong as it needs to be. And what does that add up to? It's what's been Danny Moses had talked about since last summer. Stagflation, slowing growth, high inflation. And that's exactly what the the inverted yield curve is saying. It doesn't augur particularly well. And I think at a certain point, this Federal Reserve is going to try to address it in the form of some sort of yield yield curve control, which is equally mindless if you think about it. Again, let the market forces work their magic. They will, and we will find ourselves on the other way. The problem that we wind up having is they try to insert themselves in a conversation. Yeah, it might it might help the markets for a week, a month, six months, but in the long term, we're all the worse for it. So what does this say specifically? I'll tell you exactly what it says. It says to a certain extent, we're all sort of screwed. Yeah, well, here's the one thing I would just tie it back to the stock market, in my opinion, that stagflation, and again, we have been talking about this for months, is that all of a sudden now, you're seeing companies have to make decisions about rationalizing costs, what they're willing to eat as far as it relates to margins. They're starting to lay people off. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to, they, they don't, I don't think they're going to be successful in passing through higher costs, right, to a strapped consumer that's beginning increasingly strapped, right? And so to me, I think that calls for a lower multiple. Why did we put a 17 multiple on your price target? And why did we kind of ratchet down earnings expectations? Because all of these inputs and 17 may end up being too high if we have a stagflationary period for too long. And listen, you know, guy, I was in the camp where I just didn't think yields were going to go materially higher than the 2018 high. If you look at this 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, 
broke out here, you know, that prior resistance, and it's only one point going back to late 2018, but that is support now. It's come a long way in a short period of time. And so again, you know, put this together, guy, with a dollar also breaking out to new multi-year highs. Um, this is probably what should be happening in a, a Fed rate hiking cycle. This is what we saw back in 13 and 14. The Dixie, the U.S. dollar index, really should shot up as the Fed seemed committed to normalizing rates. But what is this 20-year chart of the U.S. dollar index, which is 50% or so the euro? That is an epic breakout. What does that mean for U.S. multinational earnings? Because we already got a little taste of it from that Microsoft pre-announcement that was all on FX. Listen, the currency move is staggering if you think about it. I mean, you're pulling up a euro here, which is, again, multi-year levels. You talk about a dollar yen, which continues to sort of break out to the upside. That's problematic. And what does it say for multinationals? Well, it creates a bit of a headwind without question. Our goods are not nearly as um, attractive as they would have been with the lower dollar, number one. Number two, what do interest rates say? You know, one of your premises for why rates can go higher is because the amount of debt we have almost by definition, if they were to go higher, would be catastrophic. The powers that be will not allow that to happen. I was hoping you'd be right, and I'm hoping you'll still be right. I just don't think it's going in the cards. If you look at it right now, to your point about why that's a problem, U.S. debt to GDP right now is 138%. I think corporate debt to GDP is like 55%, levels that we've never seen before. And global debt to GDP, I think global debt to global GDP is approaching 115, 120% with rates going higher. That's really problematic. So we'll see how it all uh, plays itself out. It all comes back, though, to credit and what's going to happen to the credit markets and what it means for the economy and what subsequently it means for the stock market. But in my opinion... None of it augurs particularly well. And the problem is there are no quick fixes for what we've gotten ourselves into. Well, it's funny you say quick fix. And you've been talking about the volatility of the bond market and the treasury market for a long time here. And I think it's really just playing itself out right now. If you look at the two-year treasury guy, it started the month of June at 2.5%. Right now, it is at 3.42%. So right now, it's basically doing the work for the Fed. Mm -hmm. They haven't even raised Fed funds by the 25 basis points more than was already being expected two weeks ago. But the market is taking care of itself. The good news might be that if we get these rates to these levels, right? We get Fed funds up there. You might see the 210. You might see the, the the increases moderating a little bit. It might happen as inflation peaks over the course of the summer. And maybe they're able to orchestrate somewhat of a softer landing that at least markets are pricing in right now. But one of the major inputs, guy, that shows no signs of letting up, and you've been calling for retest in the crude market, okay, possibly as high as 150. I didn't think it was going to happen. It doesn't budge right now. It's held that uptrend like a boss, if you will. And this is the one thing that no matter what happens, the administration tapping the SPR, Biden going to see MBS, which I don't think is a good move, in my opinion. Um, Crude doesn't budge here, even in all this inflation busting action and rhetoric from the Fed. What happens over the course of the summer, the hot summer driving season of crude oil? Crude's going to exhaust itself. And again, I've said this, and I'm not looking to get political here because politics are boring as shit. But, you know, they literally could release every barrel of oil from the strategic petroleum reserve, and it wouldn't make a dent in the price of gasoline. It's just such a misguided thing to do. It's, they're trying to be politically expedient, and they're basically tripping over themselves. I mean, it's just it's, it's flat out dumb, and I'm not quite sure 
who's advising them. The real problem is, if you look at it, refineries at capacity, we're not building any new refineries. And that goes back to things that happened years ago. So as much as people want to blame the Biden administration, and trust me, they are somewhat complicit in this, but the seeds were sown for this long before Joe Biden was president of the United States, number one. Crude oil, they're clearly not getting a memo in terms of the fighting inflation. That continues to grind higher. This comes down to a supply-demand fundamentals that have been in place long before Russia invaded Ukraine, and we talked about it in the fall. I think crude would have gotten here sooner or later, whether or not Russia invaded Ukraine or not. But again, you can't do the counterfactual, so I won't try to go that route. But this was, again, sown long ago. In terms of what it means for the overall picture, listen, crude is such an important part of the global economy, and the higher it goes, the worse things get. And to your point, um, when does it exhaust itself? It will. I just don't think we're there yet. So it's a problem. It's Can I a tell you problem. They're Can trying I tell to combat you something they can't combat. Here, here's a good trade setup, and this is one that I'm going to keep a cl- close at. So the administration just put out the schedule for Biden's trip to the Middle East. Except I guess it's going to be July 13th. He meets with MBS. That could be in front of that maybe a week or so. Could be a great spot to kind of maybe put a crude short on in the futures, keeping a tight stop. But I'm going to look at the XLE. This one seemed to bifurcate yesterday with the commodity it had been trading in lockstep. So XLE, maybe OIH to the downside, maybe uh, crude in the futures. And, and, and again, you know, option pricing in the XLE, you know, is always going to be a bit more attractive than any of the individual names. So that's one I'm kind of focused on. All right, guys, we've gone over time here. We got just a couple minutes left because we got to hit gold and digital gold. Do they still call it digital gold? I don't know if it's digital gold, but talk to I've me never, about. I've, I will tell you, I've never, never called did. it that. And quite frankly, I think that the Bitcoin crypto enthusiasts, the, the ones that are out there, would suggest it's completely something different. But you know what? It's again, the, the media yeah. likes to get their arms around something and they run with it. But please continue on gold because. This All right. Is so I'm just kind of a boring media guy. I see what you did here. But if gold's not acting particularly well with inflation readings at 40 plus year highs and it's supposed to be this inflation hedge, when the hell is it going to act well, guy? Yeah. It's sitting on this uptrend going back to, I don't know, six months or so. What's your take on it here? You had a great call on that spike a few months ago, but the the, the speed in which it came back, and it really shows on any of the data that comes out, the CPI, the PPI, it maybe bounces a little bit and then comes right back to trend. Yeah. In retrospect, again, I mean, we don't have enough time to go down this road, but if you look at it, the bounce in the, bounce in the gold market sort of predated the Fed getting or at least trying to be responsible. So when yeah. gold was telling you, hey, people wake up, inflation is a problem. And then when they decided they would combat it, that proved to be around the top for the gold market. I guess somewhat counterintuitive. The worse inflation gets, the worse seemingly it is for gold because the more the Fed needs to do. The bull case for gold, again, in my opinion, is this Federal Reserve is going to blink at some point. And when they do blink, yeah. that's going to be the green light for gold. And probably it's going to be the green light for the next chart we're about to show you. Yeah. So let's talk about Bitcoin right here. And if you look at it, it you know has a 400 and I don't know, slightly over a $400 billion um, market cap. At one point, it was over um, a trillion. Coinbase, the largest or one of the largest exchanges is laying off up to 18% um, percent of their staff here. Brian Armstrong, founder, CEO, he's warning of a recession and another 
another crypto winter. He says it could lead, a recession could lead to another. So they're rationalizing costs. This chart is pretty fascinating. You know it. it you know, CME listed futures in what, December 2017. And actually, the timing of that was fairly brilliant. If you think about the ability for, you know, institutions or individuals for that matter um, to, to use futures to hedge their spot um, positioning, um, you know, we had that crypto winner, 17, 18, 19. We broke out in 2020 back above those 17 highs. We made, you know, that double top, I guess, with 67 and 69,000. Here we are, you know, I'm looking at it right now, 22.5 guy, 20,000, important psychological level. If we can hold that, maybe bang around there, that's good news for the crypto market. Yeah, and kudos to Carter Worth, who's been calling for this for quite some time. And again, sometimes being early in our business is wrong. He happened to be early and right in terms of his timing. So good for him. I'll say this. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, this 20,000 level. That's basically where I think it was 2018, December. I might be off by a year, but that's where crypto, Bitcoin specifically, topped out at. Then you had a subsequent huge drawdown. I think back to about 3,500 or so before we took the next leg higher. So that level makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. And I think a lot of people have been calling for this. I think Mike Novogratz, for one, has been talking about it. And I think this is where it's going to find, at least in the short term, a bit of a bottom. All right. Real quickly here, I think I mentioned on Market Call last month, I bought some ETH. I do not own Bitcoin. I don't find Bitcoin interesting. I'm not one of those maxis, but I do like ETH and I like some of the stuff that's being built on it. I don't like uh, some of the DeFi protocols that are blowing up in our faces. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, ETH has been getting destroyed. I did buy some last month at 2200. I bought some last week at 1600. I bought some yesterday at 1150 guy. I'm averaging into it and I'm thinking of ETH as really kind of like one of these speculative tech stocks, maybe doesn't have a lot of earnings. It's been down 70, 80% or so using, you know, a long-term time horizon dollar cost averaging into it, just in a full disclosure about what I'm doing in the crypto space, Guy Dami. You are ETH. I mean, you are ETH. And we'd be remiss if we didn't give a shout out to the OG, the original, what do they call that? The original gangster, gangster. or something. Uh, that would be Brian Kelly, who literally wrote the book on Bitcoin in 2000. 14, the Bitcoin big boom or something like bang, that. Bang, Bitcoin bang, big bang. Boom. bang, it's all, bang. It's all the same stuff. But I know bang has bad connotations for me these days, but that's probably for another show. So happy birthday, BK. But that's it for today's market call. We ran over two days in a row. I apologize. That's on me. want to thank our sponsor, CME Group. want to thank Open Exchange for powering us. If you like our video, Dan, leave a comment. Can't you do yeah. that? You say, hey, Why you guys you? sucked. You were good. We enjoyed it. <laughs> guys should change his shirt. We love to hear from you, good or bad. And trust me, we get a lot of both. Dan and I will be back tomorrow, 1 p.m. Carter Braxton Worth from Worth Charting. Later, peeps. See ya. 